Egyptians are in uproar. But he lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. that there are so many distractions that get in the way of us going higher and really entering into the presence of God and this is a moment just to put those distractions down whatever they are be still and know that he is God Lord Jesus, we thank you that you brought our whole pursuit of God down to a very simple level, the level of prayer and oneness with God and taking your word at face value. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to live our lives on that level of simplicity, Lord, where we simply believe your word and commune with you. Lord, as we look at how you brought everything down to that level of simplicity, it helps us to be still because we know, Lord Jesus, that you are God. Help us to live as you lived, Lord Jesus, with perfect peace in our hearts, Lord Jesus, you never allowed yourself to be distracted. 
Whatever people threw at you, whatever people said, whatever people did, you never allowed yourself to be distracted from that perfect oneness with the Father. Help us to live like you, Lord Jesus. To be still and to know that you are God. Thank you, Lord. And now, Father God, as we come to your word, help us simply to believe it. Amen. Amen. It's Pastor John. Church, good morning. Several, several years ago, somebody introduced me to the message. Um, it's, it's not directly a, a translation of the Bible. It's more a paraphrase. And I tend to use this quite a lot. I tend to sort of, uh, I do a reading in the morning and one at night. I tend to use this one in the morning and the other one at night. And uh, I love it. And... Uh, I read this the other day. This is the man who wrote this book. His name is Eugene Peterson. And it says, he's a poet, he's a writer, he's a scholar, but he's also a pastor. And uh, he wrote this. When he introduced the book of James, we're on chapter, if you're a visitor to us, we're going to the book of James. This is our last morning. This is chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, I'd like to turn to chapter 5. But I am actually preaching from the message this morning. And when... Eugene Peterson introduces this book of James. He says this. When Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. I think that's absolutely right, don't you? You know, I have people here this morning that can ensure the truth of that. When Christian believers gather in church, Everything that can go wrong, sooner or later, does. That, I think, just sums up our first 30 years as a church here in Warsaw. Because, number one, it's been about people becoming Christian believers. We originally called ourselves Warsaw Evangelistic Centre. The idea was that people would find and know Jesus. And for that to happen, we'd preach the gospel as well as we could. Then the second thing is, To gather those believers in church. And I believe passionately in the local church. To quote Bill Hybels, you've heard it. The local church is the hope of the world. For me, that local church is Junction 10. And the third thing is, but when you do church, everything that can go wrong does. And I've spent a lifetime trying to sort out people... And trying to sort out things that have gone wrong. And I have found the best way to do that, to sort out things that go wrong, is to love people unconditionally and to try and teach the word of God. And basically, that's what James is doing here in this epistle. It's one of my favorite books. Jonathan said it was one of his. It's certainly one of mine. I love the book of James. And we've had some great teaching over the last four weeks from John and from Roy. And and this is the last week and it falls very neatly into three sections. Three sections, three sections. Uh, And each part is something that to me is personally very important. First of all, he talks about money. 
which has always fascinated me, disturbed me, blessed me, stretched me. So I've called part one the crash. Then it's about commitment, which I've always banged on about a lot. Um, we've just finished this series on a Sunday night call. I've started, so I'll finish. And I believe the beginning well is important, but also finishing strong is vitally important. So I've called part two staying power. Then the third part I've called finding the miraculous in the mundane. And that sums up life for most of us, most of us doesn't it? Life can be very mundane and every now and then you find something amazing. So let's look at those three things. First of all, the crash. So I'm going to read and quote the message to you. Um, verse 1. A final word to you, arrogant rich. Take some lessons in lament. You'll need buckets for the tears. When the crash comes upon you, your money is corrupt. Well, church, the crash has come, hasn't it? If ever the Bible was bang up to date, then this verse is it. We're living in the days of the crash. We are witnessing probably the biggest financial collapse since the 1930s. Really, the world, experts don't know how bad it's going to be, but possibly as bad as the 1930s when the depression came. Stock markets, if you read the paper or just watch the news, have gone into complete meltdown. Banks have collapsed under the weight of subprime loans, which is a very, very posh word for just simply very bad investments. It's got global implications. No nation is exempt from what's going on. China has been like a train for the last, what, 10, 15 years. China is coming to a standstill. All around the world, we're affected by the crash. We're in new territory, trying to sort it out. And leaders, you need to know leaders of the nations are making it up as they go along. Because none of them have faced what we're facing today. They don't really know what to do. Gordon Brown said recently, didn't he, in the comments, he'd saved the world. Well, it was a slip of the tongue, but it was also badly wrong because he hasn't. You see, the national leaders can't talk to the bankers for advice because they're really the people that have got us into this crash. Very foolish, very unwise, very greedy investments they've made. Really breathtakingly stupid investments for men who should have known better. James says there in verse 2, he says, your wealth has rotted. Just to encourage you this morning, if you own property, then it's probably about 15 to 25% less than it was worth 12 months ago. You know, just to lift your spirits and make you feel good. The message says here, your money is corrupt. The Greek there implies a physical degeneration. To quote an old politician, the pound in your pocket is now worth a lot less than it was 12 months ago. And if you try and change it into dollars or euros, you'll discover that. It's worth a lot less than it was. It's been devalued by the crash. Our economy was already quite weak. There was nothing in the cupboard. All the money had been spent. And now we are taking on levels of eye-watering debt. It's breathtaking as a nation to spend our way out of the crisis. And the Tories are running a poster. You know, it's got his father's hair, his mother's eyes, and Gordon Brown's debt. You know, and apparently we're going to be paying this for the next 20 years. That's the fact of where we are. It says there, you'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes. And there's a lot of people crying. Literally and metaphorically. You know, sometimes at church, we bury our heads, don't we? We pretend that we're in here and the world's out there and it doesn't affect us. It does affect us. We're in a completely different world than we were 12 months ago. We have some previously immensely rich people who are now very poor, have nothing. Some have even committed suicide. 
And James continues in, in verse 4 to 6. All the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers you used and abused are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and you've lived it up. And people are being laid off in the thousands. Apparently, we're going to hit 2 million. They've said it could even hit 3 million unemployed. Those people didn't deserve to lose the jobs. These people I know running companies cannot get credit. The banks have shut the doors. Good companies that are going to go under and people are going to lose the jobs. If you've got a house, if you've got a mortgage, then you could well be facing very, very high interest rates, way above bank rate. It's never been like that before. And we are facing huge debt. And that affects every one of us as single individuals. So what does the word of God have to say about the crash? What does James have to say? Well, basically, in these few verses, he's, he's warning the rich who oppress the poor. That's what these verses are saying here, this first section. And his words today are very relevant to what he calls the arrogant rich, to the rich financiers who have plunged the world's financial system into this chaos by poor judgment and by greed. But looking around, just checking, I don't think we've got any rich bankers here this morning. So really, that little bit's irrelevant to us, isn't it? But what James says to the rich also applies to us because he says, your wealth is rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. In other words, wealth or money is unstable. That's what he's saying. Money cannot be trusted as a basis for our lives. It's a poor foundation on which to build and on which to trust. You see, Jesus talked a lot about money, but he taught that we should never put our trust in it. He taught good use of it, but he says you should never put your trust in it. And I think it's very easy, as Christians live in a very materialistic society, that we put our trust in money and wealth and what we own, and suddenly the whole thing is shaken. Our world is shaking. If ever there was a time for the Antichrist to step onto the scene, this is it, I tell you. The whole world is in meltdown. I said a few moments ago that money's always fascinated me and disturbed me and blessed me and stretched me. For years and years I worked in financial services before becoming a full-time minister. And I loved the job. And I loved having money to spend. And I loved being able to treat my wife and my kids and my grandkids and, and my friends. And it's a blessing to be able to do those sort of things. But money also disturbs me. The fear of not being able to manage. And there's a lot of people going through that right now. Are we going to manage? Are we going to come through this? Are we going to hold under the house? Maybe you're a spiritual giant. Maybe you never have any of those anxieties, but I do. But the word of God also teaches me that I have to be a good steward of what God gives me. And I think that What the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi is a wonderful approach to the crash. Or even the fear of a personal financial crash. Or the fear or the reality right now of being very, very reduced in your circumstances. He said this in Philippians 4 verse 12 to 13. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. So that sums us all up somewhere in that. In need and in plenty. The whole range. He says, I know what it is. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I think those are great words. I think those are great words. Money, says Paul, look, I can take it or I can leave it. I've had it in abundance. I've had periods in my life when I've had great need. Whatever the financial situation, I've learned to be content. 
That's the first thing I want to say to you this morning. That's what Paul says. Your contentment cannot be from the size of your bank balance. It can't be. It can't flow out of what you can buy. You see, retail therapy, doesn't matter how wonderful it is, will not satisfy you permanently. Contentment has to flow from what you possess in God. And it has to flow from how much God possesses you. Just pause and think about that. How much does God possess you? Because that's what your contentment flows from. And how much of God do you possess? How much of God fills your thinking and your planning and your mind and your day-to-day living? How much of it? Because that that's where contentment comes. How much does God possess you? Or has he only got a small part of you? Paul gives his son-in-law in his son-in-law. Paul gives his son in the faith, Timothy, a great investment tip. Listen to this. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That is a wonderful investment tip. If you want to see real growth, not on the stock market, but in your heart, then invest all you can in God-likeness and be content with your lot. Invest yourself in God. Be like him. Read his word. Be regularly in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and become as God wants you to become, God-likeness, and be content. Whatever's going on, if you're in great blessing, and all your investment and income is proof against all the problems, just rejoice in that. But if you're struggling, just be content, because God says, I'm going to see you through. Contentment is a wonderful state of heart. It's better than a fortune in the bank. I know a lot of people with a lot of money, discontent. I know a lot of people with very little money, discontent. You can't buy it, you see. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The crash. Here's the second thing, staying power. A couple of weeks ago, I attended a funeral at Lake Street Church with a man called Frank Littlewood. Frank Littlewood was married to my mom's cousin. So I don't know what makes her second cousin or distant relative. Lake Street is quite a big church. It was packed. It was packed. It was standing room only. And then I listened as people came to the, the pulpit and paid tribute to Frank Littlewood. You see, he was a youth leader, and also he led a choir, and it was a youth choir. It was called the Gornal Youth for Christ Choir, and he led it. And I listened as people came and paid tribute to Frank Littlewood. But the amazing thing is, the people paying tribute were from his youth group, but they were in the 60s and they were in the 70s. 